Hello, and welcome to this podcast from Consider This. Please let me know what you think and tell others about us on social media. This podcast was originally broadcast live on Northumberland 89.7 FM. You can hear this show live every Friday at noon. Thank you for downloading this program, and I hope you enjoy it. Hello, I'm Robert Washburn, and welcome to Consider This Northumberland, a current affairs program dedicated to the issues facing our community. We talk to the people on the front lines and those behind the scenes who make a difference in your life in Northumberland County. So I'm asking you, the listener, to take some time out of your busy day to consider this. On March 1st, Port Hope got a new police chief. Tim Farguson arrived from Peterborough, where he has spent his entire 36 years in policing. In this interview, you will hear the chief talk about his career from when he started as a young constable in Lakefield until he stepped down as deputy chief for the Peterborough Police. You will hear his thoughts on the budget and other initiatives, plus he will give his plans on the first 100 days. Have a listen. I'm so pleased to have with me today Port Hope Police Chief Tim Farkerson. Welcome to Consider This Northumberland. Thank you very much, Robert. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me on your show. Let's get to know you a bit before we start talking about anything else. Now, you began your policing career in 1986 with the Peterborough Lakefield Community Police Service. Do you remember those early days and what was it like? I do. It was uh, the early days. It was a lifetime calling for me. So I knew when I was 10 years old what I wanted to do. My challenge was my uh, height. I wasn't tall enough at the time in 19, early 1980s. So I just kept going to school. But eventually there was a charter argument that won and I got a call back in an interview and was successful and started in 1986 uh, with Peterborough. And the early days, all I wanted to do was get out in that cruiser and respond to calls, help the community. And it was still a busy community, different different challenges than what's being faced now, but still busy with the, because domestics have been around for many, many years, robberies, break and enters, uh, missing people. Um, mental health issues, uh, forms of addiction issues, mainly alcohol and solvents back then, uh, with, you know, their cocaine was just kind of starting in Peterborough where there was group and there's a small amount of heroin, but you knew who those were users were at that time. But it was, it was a busy city with a small city with big city problems. Now you said you had wanted to be a cop since you were 10. Now I, in looking back at your education, I mean, you went to private school at Lakefield College, just north of Peterborough, and then you went on to a number of post-secondary schools. I think Trent, Fleming, Carlton, before you got into policing. What what were you like as a young man back then? Uh, to be honest with you, I was shy and introverted. Didn't have many friends. Uh, battled uh, anxiety. I couldn't even go away from home. Couldn't I'd go to camp. I ran away from camp when I was uh, 13 or 14. Um, just battled those challenges, challenges that uh, people face. And I had uh, bad anxiety, to be honest with you. And I, and I felt I had no friends at that time. I mainly kept to myself. I was pretty quiet. I got involved in sports and different things, but didn't have a lot of self-confidence in those days as well. So what changed for you then from then to, to now? Because obviously, uh, especially to be a police officer, you've got to be outgoing. You've got to meet people all the time. What changed in those years that allowed you to become a police officer? I was blessed with the family I had. My parents were involved in the community. So that got us as kids involved in the community because they were they were selfless people. 
who just gave to others and were involved in every organization that you could imagine from YWCA to YMCA to United Way, you, you name it, they were involved in it. They took in the homeless, uh, people that were suffering mental health issues. Uh, that was my parents. So that partially brought me out of my shell. Three great sisters who were supportive. Lakefield College School, actually, I give a lot of credit to uh, the system. Uh, it was a private school at that time. It still is, but I mean, it was just just boys, young men. Now that's that's changed, but that definitely helped me. Um, so those are some of the reasons before I got into policing. Tell us a bit about how you advanced through the various levels of policing. Sure. The one thing that uh, definitely uh, you have to get out of your shell is when you're a police officer taking statements on different uh, crimes, offenses. You're dealing with people all the time. You you end up having to do um, education, proactive crime prevention tips. So you're speaking to the elderly on fraud scams. You're speaking uh, at the public library about robbery prevention. You're you're put into those situations. I was also a liaison at, the high, at some of the local high schools like Kenner Collegiate. So you're interacting with young people all the time, um, answering their questions, getting them interested in policing. Uh, so all those things uh, bring you out of your shell. And when you start policing, you're what they call pushing a cruiser, which means just answering calls for service, which is the most important job. So right now, uh, I'm still supporting the front line because it's all about the frontline cop, the frontline police officer who's out there answering calls, he or she, uh, at morning, night, 24-7, they're the first responders, along with fire paramedics. But for policing, it's the constable role is the most important role. <clears throat> From there, there's natural progression. As time goes on, you become a first-class constable after three and a half years. And then you look for other opportunities. Those usually don't happen for six, between six and 10 years of your career where you can apply for the detective office. And there's so many different branches from a drug unit to sexual assault unit, to internet child exploitation now, to intelligence, uh, to major crime, to high risk unit. There's just so many units that um, there's, there's other units too as well, canine. Some officers acclimate to canine or emergency response team. Uh, there's so there's so many different areas you can branch off. But for me, it was to go to the detective office. And I started in the sexual assault unit. That was six years. I, I was very blessed to get in so early at six years into the detective office. And I stayed there for a number of years, seven years. I, I left the sex unit after two years because a um, drug unit job came. And I did that for over three years. Then intelligence officer for another three years. And then I went back to the road for a little while. And at that point, you've done a lot in your career. Uh, you're talking, you know, you're at the 12, 13, 14 year mark. And when I got to that point, I thought, okay, after a couple of years back in the road, I said, I need a new challenge. So I wrote for the sergeant exam. So that was, I got, I was successful at about 14 years to be a sergeant. And honestly, that was probably one of the best jobs ever. When you're talking about anything after that, supervising and being on the front line, helping the team, uh, being there as a big support for your shift, right? And so the sergeant role came along. I was probably two years before an opportunity came back to lead the drug unit uh, because that's where I'd taken a lot of courses. And I, it just, with my personality and everything that I did uh, was working with informants, you know, sometimes going to the prison and getting people to admit to crimes, getting people to admit to crimes, being a people person and how I went from being so introverted to being able to speak to people. I, 
it was a natural progression, but I think it gave me the ability to be sincere and authentic with people. And they knew because you can't fake that. And to get information from from people about crimes and sometimes having to give information on a friend or to admit to a crime that's going to put them in jail. It it takes a lot of caring and compassion and definitely strategy. Um, so I was very, very, very fortunate to succeed in that role. That's why I was asked to go back into the sergeant role and lead the drug unit and intelligence unit. And then from there, I stayed in CIB and the criminal investigation branch, uh, was promoted to staff sergeant. And timing-wise, I was promoted to inspector in 2009 from the criminal investigation branch. So I just basically moved from office to office in those in those units. And my passion was uh, addiction, mental health, um, and poverty, homelessness. Uh, all those challenges that we were seeing really facing Peterborough and other communities across North America after 2000 and the introduction of OxyContin. And we know the history of that and, and opioids. So I took a real passion for that and I changed my approach from strictly enforcement based. Uh, and that goes, a lot of credit goes back to Chief Murray Rod who, who corrected me uh, because he, his point was you're setting the world on fire with arrests and joint force projects all over the province on organized crime, traditional organized crime uh, on that piece of it. But you're, you're missing the community piece and, and the approach of the collaborative to, to really solve the problems that you're seeing. So you need to take a more collaborative approach. So he helped me uh, change change the enforcement focus to a four pillar focus of how important treatment is, how important uh, prevention slash education is, how important harm reduction is. And I had a lot of other experts around Peterborough who I got along with really well and educated me about harm reduction, which at that time in the early 2000s, police, that it was nothing. It was just simply your enabler to to talk about harm reduction so i learned on my own and i changed it I actually got to the point where i was speaking around the country ended up in utah different places uh in the states uh speaking about the approach how we're going to change this approach for policing around drugs and and the look at that so that's where my career went and then i became deputy chief in 2012 acting and sworn in in 2013 again that approach never changed and I ended up at Ontario Association of Chiefs of Police on one of their committees, the Substance Advisory Committee, along with other ones. But that that's where my passion was. And then at the national table, Canadian Association of Chiefs of Police Drug Advisory Committee, where I pushed the same things. In Peterborough, uh, we went against the grid again, not just supporting harm reduction in the early 2000s and through and places like Peterborough AIDS Resource Network, who were giving out needles and exchange needles and safer inhalation kits and that type of thing. Um, but continued on a path to change our service and our drug unit to embrace that four-pillar four approach. So it wasn't all just about enforcement. We were not going to be able to solve this problem or arrest our way out of a problem. And people didn't like it at that time when I'd say, look, we can't arrest our way out of the drug problem or the mental health crisis. And people didn't like that. But what I was saying was, it, not that you're not responsible for your behavior. If you're doing a robbery, if you're doing a break and enter, you're responsible for that behavior. But for simply being addicted, having an addiction issue alone, a person who uses drugs and has an addiction challenge, what I was saying is arresting, we'd be arresting thousands of people. At that time, we had 1,200 people on methadone clinics. And people would uh, would say that the methadone clinics, they're terrible, and that's what's causing problems in Peterborough. Well, our five methadone clinics at the time, yes, they, there was a lot. That's a higher number. But that's just because of the size of the buildings. You could have easily had one or two that were bigger buildings, but the spaces created five. And people said, this is destroying our town. Well, 
1,200 people, as young as uh, uh, people with addiction issues, as young as 15 that we knew of. But once the people were able to take methadone in Peterborough, yes, there were some people taking advantage of it, but the majority were going to work. The, a lot of them were getting their children back from uh, ch children's aid and foster homes. There were so many good stories, but th that paled in comparison to the narrative that things were bad. And in 2016, we were the first ones in Canada to have our officers outfitted with naloxone. And at that time, our, I was taking a lot of heat um, as deputy for supporting that uh, from my, my other peers. Well, now you look at every single police service in Canada has naloxone, carries it, uses it frequently to save lives. But those are the things that you're up against. And part of leadership that you learn is you have to tune out the noise when you're doing the right thing. And it, and it goes on from there with the support of safer, the safer supply. And when we say that, we're not talking about, when we take, say this safer supply, when we talk about legal heroin di and diacetylmorphine, and, and we talk ab about dilaudid with hydromorphone, uh, those uh, other opioid agonist therapies. When we talk about those, um, what I'm saying is that we support that with a regulatory physician-led model of a safe supply. Again, we're up against, we have a project going on in Peterborough where I was, uh, that's very successful. And then the CTS, Consumption Treatment Services site, uh, supporting that, you take a lot of heat on that, but this, it's doing its job in Peterborough. Um, and it goes on from there. You know where my passion is, Robert. It's it's about all those things um, and, and the homelessness piece um, and what we can do to support those and proactive strategies and working as a team. When you look back at all the diverse things you've done as a police officer and all the training you've done in a wide variety of areas, can you share a story that would encapsulate your what you would say is your proudest achievement thus far? The, the proudest achievement I'd have to say was probably, because it was a challenge at the time, was the Peterborough drug strategy. So with that, those the deaths we were losing. So to picture Peterborough, Population of eighty-five thousand at the time, seventy-five to eighty-five thousand in, in the early two thousands. We come up against a drug called OxyContin. Purdue Pharma, we know all about that. Nineteen ninety-eight, ninety-nine, and and what happened there? Doctors being told that it's it's non-addictive, and I don't want to get into the history of that. But in the early two thousands, Peterborough, the robberies were going up, break and enters. I was getting calls from the school about the addiction. Uh, levels, people finding diversion from their parents who had a legal prescription, may have been from a dentist, it may have been from a doctor, it may have been from a fall or an accident. Um, it, it, we got That was another piece. Our crime rates, our sex trade workers, we had uh, 26 sex trade workers in Peterborough walking street souls. I'm not talking about the hotels, I'm not talking about escort agencies, I'm talking about souls on the street that we identified and reached out as officers, not to arrest them, to talk to them and try and build trust and find out what was going on. All 26 sex trade workers out there because of opioid addiction. Why? Root cause? Sexual assault by intimate family, brothers, uncles, grandfathers, and that. Why are we taking drugs? To kill psychological, emotional, or physical pain, right? That's basically why you're, you're doing it, to escape, to escape that pain. Uh, so I took a vast interest in that, a big interest in that. And we got uh, several community agencies together. And in 2006, we had meetings and we decided we were going to form a drug strategy. What happened shortly after is we pulled out as police and said, okay, we'll leave it over to the partners. We're, we got to get back to enforcement. That's our role. Well, what happened is when the police pull out, we can bring people together, the police. That just happens. But when we pull out, other agencies say, well, if they don't care, and the community says the police don't care, then 
people drop off. So in 2008, we regrouped, got a group together of 70 community agencies in the basement of uh, Peterborough Public Library. Got brought those agencies together, had speakers, and stayed with what was called the Peterborough Drug Strategy, which we formed in 2008. It became an award-winning strategy through Ontario Association of Chiefs of Police. And the work that that, that group has done, um, those four pillars, all working together, those the treatment, the prevention, education, enforcement, harm reduction, all working together, um, this problem would be so much worse than it already is. A a again, we're losing, in Peterborough, they were losing now 55 people um, last year, right? And, and I'm going back to 2000 when we were losing 12 to 17. And we, as a community, had to figure this out, what we were going to do ourselves. And that's what we started doing. So that would probably be the proudest moment I had, bringing those agencies together, forming that strategy and going from there. Again, after that, there's been a natural effect of naloxone, safer supply, CTS, all those other things. But that was kind of the catalyst. And for me, it was a paradigm shift that uh, enforcement can't do it alone. I, You know, where you think you're setting the world on fire because you're making all these amazing arrests getting guns off the street, getting, which is great, getting the traffickers in, in prison, but there's more traffickers and there's, there's more. There's, so there's just, we have to, obviously enforcement is responsible for the interdiction, slowing things down, making it tougher for the criminals, showing that it's not, a, not lucrative because you're going to jail. Uh, th those are the things that the, the police have to do, right? On production, on labs, clandestine labs. That's what we want to concentrate on. Uh, the problem is the challenge has gotten so big. The crisis has gotten so great uh, that we can't we can't control it right now um, even with all of us working together and as i said if we weren't it would be so much worse uh, so there's still a lot of work to do which which keeps me motivated keeps me challenged um, and i've been blessed when i came down to port hope to be able to the board supported me staying doing the jo jobs i'm doing at the federal national level and at the provincial level as well being part of those teams um, off the corner of my desk i still have my responsibilities in, in Port Hope for the community and keeping it safe. Uh, but to be able to, it's great for, it was great for Peterborough and it's great for Port Hope now to have somebody um, at, at in this position. Again, I don't look at it as running a police service. I'm supporting a police service. Don't forget, I always remember the frontline topper, right? Who's out there. Cause that's what I'm doing. And that's what the rest of us are doing in the service. We're all an important cog, important piece, but the real important piece of it is answering those calls, getting to those emergencies, working the night shifts, working 24 seven, right? So I, I'm blessed to be in Port Hope who have been so welcoming, Robert. It's, it's, I can't even begin to explain how great this board has been. The police services board, uh, you have all the members of the board from the mayor uh, th through the chair, the vice chair and the, and the rest of that group, previous members uh, as well have been supportive. Uh, the, the CAO, David Smith, um, you, you could just, there's so many people that have been so helpful. I, I come in to work and just see such a great group of people that are energetic and, and really happy you're here. And it's, I can't ask for more. It's, it's starting, it's starting again. I feel like a kid after well, 36, 25 years of this. Well, what is it like to come from a big police force like Peterborough to a, a smaller force like Port Hope? It's honestly, I keep, people keep on messaging me. Well, you must be really, it must be really quiet. You must be really bored. Not at all. We're going with meeting to meeting because at this level, it's about engagement. It's about community engagement and collaboration. It's about community agencies getting out there. What can we do together? And meeting as many as you can. I just was at Rebound at Child Youth Services. Wow, incredible people. 
uh, I met a number of them. I think there was 11 of the 18 working that day and sat down with three of them, including Carol Beauchamp, the, the, the lead, Jennifer Julia. I, I, I could go on about the people there and what they're doing. And I was just so amazed and so excited about what the what this group's doing. I'm going to meet David Sheffield um, of Greenwood Coalition, right? And I got to get over to Cornerstone. Uh, it's going to be so busy just learning. And so you ask about what the difference is. Honestly, there's the same... There's a lot of the same challenges with budget, with manpower, with um, the size of the building that they've already outgrown. It, it, it's almost like I feel like I'm back in Peterborough with just similar, similar, smaller challenges, less of it. But you, you, it's still overwhelming. People that are off on occupational stress injuries, it's still happening in Port Hope. It's happening in Coburg. It's happening like, not just Peterborough, right? It's happening all across North America. And and it's going to make it really tough for, for policing to stay sustainable if we don't figure out these issues. So I have so much work to do. And I'm just learning a new system. Everything is new for me here. Like a lot of it, right? The policing part I, I get, but there's just so many other nuances and intricacies and the history of Port Hope and the history of the police service, which I'm excited about, right? But again, there's so much collaboration to do here. And, and uh, I've got the energy to do it still. You've talked already uh, about the issues of homelessness and opioids, which are two really big issues uh, in our, our region. Um, how does your approach change? You've talked about it at a, at a national level, a provincial level. You've talked about it from a big city uh, uh, level. When you look at the situation and looking at your strategies, how do you apply those to Port Hope? And what are you going to bring to the table that's maybe going to be different that might change some of the landscape here locally? Well, the good thing is that I have patience. I love people. I don't make any judgments. I'm going to meet, I'm going to be meeting with the OPP, with Coburg, because I've noticed how close that relationship is with OPP, Coburg, and Port Hope Police. And we're going to discuss strategies in regards to, you know, street crime units, what, what you can do on the crime piece of it. But, but again, we're good at that. In policing, we are good at that. We've kind of got that that part of it nailed. What we don't have is perfectly yet is working with the community, being humble, realizing we don't know what else, what else can we do. And I'll still carry on fundraising and board work here that I'm moving from Peterborough to Port Hope. I'm bringing everything that I did in Port Hope or in Peterborough to Port Hope. That includes fundraisers. Um, before I even started, I went to the coldest night of the year walk. Um, right down at uh, down, right down at the lakefront, and we walked it, raising funds and awareness for homelessness. That was before I started the job, so that's going to continue to at the grassroots level, and about treating every human being, <clears throat> speaking to people with mental health, addiction issues, and all that, and treating them as human beings, making the proper referrals, making sure our officers know uh, what referrals are out there, because you can get you can go from call to call, but it's having that philosophy of getting to the root cause, so you don't have to get back to that call. As Desmond Tutu said, as the Community Safety and Wellbeing Plan said, I, I want to adhere to what they're saying. Let's not be dragging somebody out of the bottom of the river. Let's catch them before they've fallen in. Let's get those early interventions with people and with our youth. And that's going to be a lot of, of, of it is the youth. Early interventions so that before they hit the judicial system, we've figured out when they first come into contact with the law and we have an ability to do something, let's look at every single avenue so that, that we're treating that person with respect. We still have to deal with whatever the behavior is because we're all accountable for our behavior. But again, we wanna to get to the root cause of the problem. 
Would you be willing to explore uh, safe injection sites and and some of the other things that you were doing in Peterborough in a community like Port Hope? I mean, are, are those options? You have to be open to that. And 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 so how I look at it is, it's not the police role to to make it happen. What the police role is to support our experts, our subject matter experts in in Northumberland County. Let's just instead of just saying Port Hope, because I am noticing right off the bat how this. Uh, this community is so immersed in each other, like the people and how close the proximity and how this is, you know, Port Hope is the first hybrid board I've sat on. So the OPP and, and the police service, both on the same board. I, I've never, it's only, that only happens in a few places in Ontario. So I'm looking at the Northumberland piece. It's working, it's working together and exploring that. So if our subject matter experts, the medical officer of health, those people come to me and say, Tim, we need your support. We need you, your advocacy. And those are the experts who, who tell me what what is needed in those areas that aren't enforcement. And then that's when I'll write the letters. I'll, I've done it before for the CTS and Peterborough and Safer Supply. I've written the letters, advocated, um, sat on boards, sat on committees, sat on steering committees, offered our advice on locations and different things that the police can, can do on crime prevention through environmental design, crime prevention through social development. That's, that's my area of expertise. The other, I listen. I sit back and find out what we need to do in, in these communities to help out. And I'll be part of that. I'd like to shift gears for a moment and talk a little bit about the administrative side. Now, you've been through the budget process many times. With all the pressures on municipal councils to control spending, how do you hope to keep police spending in line? It's, it's a challenge right now for every single police service across the country and every single police leader. You're being hit from every angle. And as I said to you earlier, Robert, one of the biggest challenges is, is the number of people in, in all emergency services that are off the front line that aren't able to, to um, come to work because of occupational stress injuries of various kinds. I mean, you have maternity leaves, you have all those other pieces, you have sick leave, uh, long-term, you know, from injuries, physical injuries. Uh, but the trauma that's caused from what people see in the buildup of, of the calls that they go on and, and the humans suffering that they see call after call uh, that builds up. So keeping people at work is, is huge for the budget. It's working on people's mental health, supporting the members here. And that'll be a huge part to help with the budget. There's all those other things that we you try and save money on. You look at cruisers and how long they can last, right? Where you can get grants. So but grants aren't always sustainable. So you you could be putting your board into a precarious position by trying to jump onto every, every stream of funding that there is. But there are some strategic um, grants out there that you can work with your community partners that also help our budget. They might help, some of those grants will go through the police service, they'll funnel through a police service, but they'll help another community agency, right? Your proceeds of crime grant, uh, your criminal, uh, your CREA grants, um, some trillion grants, the police have to be involved in those. So we'll always be open to those and with our community partners. Uh, but all the things that we look here at the micro level, we'll do that with the team and sit down and we'll start having meetings and we'll have probably three meetings a week. They might only be half an hour on a Monday, Wednesday, Friday morning and look at the budget and sit down. What are we doing? What lines are we over at? What risk are we at? Let's look at the long term. Uh, two for the year. Like I look here, they're just getting new tasers. Well, that's a $35,000 expenditure. But some of those things are legislated changes. They're mandated. We don't have control over it. So that's another piece of the budget that we, the community needs to understand. But it's about op being open, being transparent, working with the board, looking at taking the board's direction, their goal and, goals and directives, 
what the board is looking for, being transparent with the board about what we need to spend on, try to plan a year in advance, although things will come up, but try and get into that, that get the team used to, we need to forecast, what do we need next year? Is the board Also other revenue opportunities. For instance, uh, in, in Peterborough, they don't have the revenue opportunities uh, of uh, the criminal record checks, but you'll see in Coburg and Port Hope, they do. And those are big parts of a smaller police service that they rely on. And I've noticed here they've done a fantastic job and they've done it in Coburg as well at getting revenue for capital expenses, buying the police cruisers, buying handguns, uh, tasers, different different pieces of equipment that they need, computers. So it's, it's those parts. Also learning, not always having to reinvent the wheel. By having contacts around the province and around the nation, we look at best practices, right? Other police services sometimes have figured something out that they can help in regards to budget. But it's about being, paying attention, paying attention to it, making sure your members take it seriously, uh, being careful with equipment. Those are some of the smaller things that we that we hadn't mentioned yet. Uh, but there's a, there's a lot to it. And uh, it's not gonna get any easier, Robert, uh, for any police service in the country. There's more pressures all the time. And, and I, I had seen, I said earlier, sustainable grants. They're not always there. The grants can come. And, but they can also disappear. And if you rely on them too much, you can get yourself into trouble. That could be for human trafficking investigators. There's all sorts of different grants for, for people, uh, but beware, they could they stop. And then what do you do um, at that time, right? So, so many things that we could talk about on the budget, but I, I'm blessed to be aware of it. And like you said, I've been involved in the budgets heavily since 2009. You've not always faced smooth sailing when it comes to your policing career. Now, back in 2015, 2016, you were in a pretty serious dispute over compensation and your police service board was declared dysfunctional by the Ontario Civilian Police Commission. What happened and what lessons did you take away from those experiences that apply to you as a leader in policing today? I think, and those started in 2012. That's, that's when that started. It finished up in 2015, 2016 with the mediation, the settlements um, in regards to settling the mediation. <clears throat> I, You learn that you do every single thing you can before those things get involved. Sometimes you, you try to follow the rules, you try to follow uh, board policy, you try to follow, but you sometimes being too risk adverse is not a good thing. Sometimes you have to reach out and say, look it, Let's cut, let's cut through this. Let's have a face-to-face -face meeting. Let's get the lawyers out of this. Because I'll be honest with you, you can get a lawyer to say anything, argue any case, and the lawyers can all of a sudden start going on their own. And don't get me wrong, there's some amazing lawyers out there, but the lawyers can sometimes um, take off on, on their own. And the next thing you know, you're into the middle of something that, man, could we have, is there, was there a way to possibly talk a little bit more at the beginning face-to-face -face and, and, and work this out? Um, as people. So that, that's that's what I learned before anything is that to try and face-to-face -face meetings are so much better than before you involve the legal experts, so to speak. Um, do everything you everything you possibly can uh, so you know at the end of the day you've you've done that. And if you end up in a litigation or something, then just be on the, on the right side. And if you go through the Sandler report, Mark Sandler report, it explains it all. There was a full investigation on everyone, on everybody, uh, through that by Mark Sandler, a top Canadian criminal lawyer uh, in the country, who explains it all. And it's a 15-minute read for anyone who wants to read it, and they'll explain it. 
What kind of a person are you when you're not wearing your uniform? What do you do for fun? Oh, I've got 32 animals. I've got big horses. I've got little horses. I've got a donkey. I've got a miniature horse that's the size of a Great Dane. I have alpacas. I should say we have alpacas. Uh, chickens, sheep, uh, a couple little baby sheep, uh, two different types of goats. I think six of those. A uh, rescue dog from South Korea that was a meat dog who we still have. And another dog, uh, two dogs. Uh, basically the farm and, and uh, kids who love the farm and grandkids. Um, and that's that's my time, my, my family. Um, and uh, I, yeah, I have a motocross track that uh, I'm in my, what am I, 61 now and I'm still jumping 65 feet. Uh, I don't know how long, much longer I could do that, but that's, that's kind of my uh, fun thing. And then uh, I have a gym built into uh, my garage that uh, try, so I can tr try and stay healthy. Uh, but family and animals. Okay. Can you tell us a bit about your family? Yeah, I've got a 32-year-old uh, daughter. Uh, she's a teacher. She has two young children, uh, Selen and Sutton, two young girls. She's married to a firefighter in Peterborough. Uh, he played professional hockey, then was a firefighter in Oakville, and then transferred to Peterborough. So he's a fireman. She's a teacher with the two kids. Then I have a son who's going through as an apprentice for the uh, an elevator technician, and he has a little boy. And his wife is a emergency room nurse, and he's 30. Then I have a 28-year-old, just well, she's 27. She will be 28 soon, and she's a nurse in Sault Ste. Marie. Her boyfriend is a uh, flight uh, terminal. Uh, what do you? What do you I, I've lost for words in the terminal at the brings in the planes. Wow. The, so that that's that's his job, and then a daughter who's twelve who's right into horses, and she's the only one still at home. Um, air traffic controller, sorry, Kai is an air traffic controller. I was having a mental block there, long day, and so and then uh, that's so Chelsea's the oldest, then Holden, and then Sydney the nurse and the Sioux, then Hannah is at home and she's in the equestrian riding. So she's going to the World Equestrian Center this weekend in uh ohio they're driving down and and she's going to do some competing down there uh so hence my world of horses and my wife jen is a paramedic and has been for 19 years almost 20 years now in peterborough and now is a community just got off the off the what we call the first response into community paramedicine which is a great program proactive program she's been doing now for a couple of years and, and loves that so mm -hmm. And and I said my three sisters are still in and their husbands all in Peterborough and seventeen nephews and nieces, so they all everyone keeps me on my toes and uh, I'm sure I keep them on their toes more than they do me. You've been honored many times with a very long list of awards and honors. What are some that have meant the most to you? Um, you know what? I try not to think of awards and honors because so many people are out there doing so many good things, and I. I don't, I honestly don't think about them that much and I never do anything for it. Uh, like I, I don't ever think about it. I don't want to be honored for things. And, and some of the, there's a couple of them that are uh, like just too kind of tragic um, as well. Um, they, they worked out well, but they didn't for some people. So it's, it, it's hard and, and you always want to remain um, humble and, and not think about those. I, I mean, I appreciate people who put me in for awards throughout my career, throughout, but I just love to work hard. I, I love to do those things. And I, I, I'm faith-based, I have huge faith. 
And I, I do believe in God, Jesus, that that's what's carried me through resiliency. That's what's given me the resilience to make this job and not break down after 36.5 years with some of the things I've dealt with is that is the faith. And that's that's what's gotten me through. And I think everybody needs that. And I think it's left out of the it's left out of a lot of conversations, to be honest, Robert. And I don't push any faith on anyone, but you need faith in something. It does not have to be my faith. It doesn't have to be Tim Farperson's faith, but you need faith. To, I don't know how people get through without it because it's gotten me through a lot of tragedy in my life is, is, is having that. So being faith-based is, is the biggest thing for me, has been the biggest success. And that's who I give credit to for any of the awards, any of my accomplishments, any of my prom promotions. Uh, this whole thing, everything that happened in Peterborough, that's happened historically for me. Um, you talked about some of the things. The leaving Peterborough, I knew it was my time to leave and, and breathe fresh air into that organization. And what was I going to do next? And then this comes along and I get a call from a, uh, you know, a headhunter, so to speak, consultant firm <clears throat> at the exact time. And then everything fell into place. I, and I can't even explain it. I can't. It's just uncanny how everything worked out and, and how blessed I am to be here. And I consider it a blessing, to be honest with you, Robert. Going forward, what is it you hope to get done within the next 100 days? Meet with every single person in this organization, sworn and civilian, and volunteer, and that includes the auxiliary. Uh, meet with the OPP. Uh, that would be Inspector uh, Jeff Martin, who's going to be, I believe, retiring soon. But I want to meet with him and, and get some information from him and his staff sergeant and sergeants. On, on everything that they can help me with. I want to learn as much as possible. I didn't want to sit down with Chief Paul Vandergraaf, who I've known for a number of years and is a friend of mine. And now we're working together. And Jeff Haskins, the deputy, and pe people there. I want to meet with all the community agencies. I want to meet with the HBIA because that's those are the things I did in Peterborough. And those are the things that are, were successful for me was a community collaboration and meeting every single person, then the community citizens, taking part in the fundraisers, putting a report to the board of what needs to be done here and what to support the service in the best way possible. What efficiencies can we find? How can we do uh, better business? So that's what I want to do in the first 100 days, be out there. And that's what I'm trying to do each day is balancing everything, learning about the budget here, learning about all the challenges here, meeting those people, but also getting out in the community and scheduling meetings. And that's, that's what I'm doing. And there's little things that you can always do, there are little things that aren't uh, little decisions that can be made, smaller decisions. But I want to get to know what needs to be done before just coming in uh, like a bull in a china shop, so to speak. Um, talk to everybody and, and inform those those ideas and work with the board because they're my boss. Right. That's the direction. But how I look at it here, Robert, is I'm the least amongst everybody. Um, I can't do it without them. I need them frontline more than they need me. And keeping that that approach has always been has helped me. Uh, and so that's where that's where I'm that's where I'm going and listening to the community. What do we need to keep Port Hope as a safe place to live, work and play the safest possible place? Chief Tim Farkson, thank you so much for talking to me today. Well, thank you very much, Robert. That was Port Hope Police Chief Tim Farkson. I want to thank my guests this week for talking to me. And I want to thank all the listeners for tuning in today. Please join me again next week when we will talk to the people on the front lines and those behind the scenes who make a difference in your life and Northumberland County. So please tune in. If you would like to listen or share this or any podcast, please check out my website at consider-this.ca. There you will find past podcasts, news, and other information about life and politics in Northumberland County. 
or you can go to the radio station's website at northumberland897.ca. I'm Robert Washburn. Thanks for taking time out of your day to listen in, and I hope over the week you will continue to consider this. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Consider This. If you have any comments or would like to suggest a story, please contact me at considerthisnorthumberland at gmail.com or you can message me on Facebook at Consider This. If you enjoyed this podcast or are looking for more news and information about Northumberland County, please check out my website at consider-this.ca. That's consider-this.ca. And don't forget to share. And again, thank you for listening and stay tuned for more from Consider This.